Okay, in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, one God, amen. So in our third talk, we're talking about becoming a capacity for God. And um, so what we're going to be talking about together right now in this, in this talk is certain dispositions of the, of the heart for, you know, we talked about hiddenness, we talked about the heart, we talked about newness, we talked about silence. And now we're going to look at a few characteristics that are really important for that interior life how to cultivate some of these dispositions of the heart um, in order for us to have sort of a right attitude about how we interact with the grace of God in our life. And one of the things that I think is really important as a sort of corrective for us always in our spiritual life is to remember that the spiritual life is not so much about what I do, but it's about what God wants to give me and that I need to make myself available to receive the things that he wants to give me. Right? So again, you know, like I was just saying about the story of the parable of the prodigal son, right? Jesus in the parable says that the father says to the elder son, all that I have is yours. Like God's desire and his wish is to give us all of his grace and his mercy and his love and his gifts and his talents. And ultimately he wants to give us eternity and glory and, you know, being with him and reigning with him in heaven. So... The spiritual life is more about us saying yes to receiving from God more than it is proving to Him that we deserve something from Him or that we are trying to earn something from Him. So much of the spiritual life should be seen in terms of how do we sort of remove those impediments that restrict the flow of grace into our life? How do we prepare our hearts to receive from God the things He wants to give us? Right? And the model for this, of course, is, is, is like I said in the beginning, the model is always we go back to our Lord. And the Lord Jesus Christ in his humanity, he shows us what it means to be a perfect man. And in the incarnation, we see that the Lord Jesus Christ is this perfect receptivity of God, of the Father. He, he over and over again affirms that he doesn't come to be an independent person apart from the Father or to have his own plan or his own design or his own will. That he's always saying that the Father and I are one. Right? So when you read the Gospel of John, this comes out very powerfully and beautifully throughout the Gospel of St. John especially. So if we just take a couple of examples, John 5, 19, Jesus answered and said to them, Most assuredly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of himself, but what he sees the Father do, for whatever he does, the Son also does in like manner. John 10, 10, you do, not, do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father in me? The words that I speak to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does the works. John 12, 49, For I have not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who sent me gave me a command, what I should say and what I should speak. Right? So the Lord is constantly affirming, reaffirming over and over again. I, my food is to do the will of my Father. I have no word, I have no action, I have no purpose other than to be this overflow of the Father through me to the world. And so this has becomes sort of the model of the Christian life. That like the Lord Jesus Christ, we are called to be more a capacity or a receptivity of, of the life of God in, in us. And so everything that we do, prayer, asceticism, the sacraments, all of that is meant to bring about this openness you know, and to remove sort of those, as I said, those impediments that restrict God's action in our life. So, what are some of those 
dispositions then that we need to cultivate. The first one I would say is this idea of detachment. Detachment. Detachment is, in a sense, the way that we make space for God and for heavenly things. Right? And so in a sense, detachment is related to love. Because the problem of being attached to material or temporal or earthly things or even to human relationships where they become sort of disproportionately um, necessary in my life is that I, I sort of snuff out the ability to love God properly. Um, so the problem isn't the thing in and of itself. The world is good. The creation is good. All that is created is good. You know, as one of the fathers says, God is never in competition with his own creation. God doesn't then create the world and then see it as bad. But the, the beginning of the Bible affirms over and over again that he created and then after he created, he said what? And then he saw that it was good. Right? So everything that's created is good, but it has a proper order. It has a proper you know, um, way of being utilized to achieve its purpose. But when we, when we make those created things the end and of themselves, or the source of our happiness, or the source of our fulfillment, or the source of our identity, then they become sort of disordered in our life. And when that happens, we lose the ability to have that relationship with God that is um, the outpouring of His love into our lives. So, asceticism then is not some sort of superhuman effort to like show off our spiritual muscles. Asceticism is the clearing away of all that is disordered in our life in order to prepare the heart for receptivity of God. Um, detachment is a sort of denial, right, of all that is um, not God so that we can make space for what is God. So there's a, a, a book, it's actually um, many, many years old now, called The Roots of Christian uh, Mysticism. The author of the book, his name is Olivier Clement. He's a French author, uh, Orthodox French author. And um, it's a very good book. He goes through um, a lot of the uh, different fathers and saints of the church. And in this um, section where he talks about asceticism, I think he gives one of the best definitions of what asceticism is. He says, ascesis, or asceticism, is the awakening from the sleepwalking of daily life. It enables the word to clear the silt away in the depth of the soul, freeing the springs of living waters. The word can restore its original brightness to the tarnished image of God in us, the silver coin that has rolled in the dust but remains stamped with the king's likeness. It is the word who acts, but we have to cooperate with him, not so much by exertion of our willpower as by the loving attentiveness. The purpose of ascesis is thus to divest oneself of surplus weight, of spiritual fat. Ascesis is not obedience to some abstract categorical imperative. It frees human nature to follow its deep instinct to ascend towards God. And everything is done in Christ. He excites and sustains our effort. Ascesis is a response of love. It is a positive abandonment enabling Christ to purify us as gold in the fire. For he is the goldsmith and the fire is that of the Holy Spirit. So think of it as this 
removing the tarnish, removing the silt away that prepares for the connectivity between us and God. Um, and so there are things um, that are... Um, that are, again, good in and of themselves, things that are neutral, depending on how they are utilized by us. And the idea of asceticism is to put everything in its proper order, right? So when we fast, we're not, the goal is not to hurt the body. The, the, the goal is to give the body its sort of proper balance with food, right? When we restrict our sleep, when we restrict, you know, all of the things that we, the, the, the body craves, we're, we're actually trying to order the body in the proper way. And so that even things like the pleasures that come with food and sleep and, and with sex, that these pleasures are in and of themselves are meant to encourage the, the goal for which they exist, right? We, we find pleasure in eating because we need to eat and, and, and satisfy the needs of the body. Right? The, the, the pleasure that comes with, with, with the sexual union between a man and a woman is meant to encourage that unity between the husband and wife and to allow for procreation. But when we reverse the order and when we, when we make the pleasure of food or the pleasure, pleasure of rest or the pleasure of sex as the most important thing and the goal, right, and everything else becomes a sort of byproduct, right, then we see how quickly it becomes a disordered, you know, um, impulse in our life. So, so detachment then, think of detachment and asceticism as sort of the clearing away of everything that is impeding. Elder Paisius gives the example of like a cable, a cable that connects God to us. And he says the flow of grace, the flow of divine love is something that originates with God in which he pours out abundantly. But our work is to simply keep the cable clean, right? We don't, we don't force the, the, uh, the conduit. You know, we don't have the power to switch it on and off. But we have the ability to keep it from impeding the force of God's love and grace in our lives. So the next um, characteristic or attribute after detachment is vulnerability. And the word vulnerability is, um, is a beautiful word. It comes from the Latin vulnus, which means wound. And so in a sense, a vulnerable person is somebody who is openly woundable, right? And it's really, again, it goes to the heart of the person of our Lord Jesus Christ, that he became not just a human, right? Not just man, but he became vulnerable. Right. He allowed himself to be woundable, to be wounded on our behalf. And so this is somebody whose heart is open, somebody who is exposed, somebody who is um, sort of raw in their love, um, and somebody who's willing to let go of sort of an overprotectiveness and um, a sense of like, refusal to surrender oneself to another. A vulnerable person makes themselves more available to another person, right? And so in the incarnation, we see that the very power and omnipotence of God, the very, the very glory of God becomes very vulnerable in human nature. He becomes a baby. He becomes a child. He becomes a man who can be crucified. He becomes bread and wine that can be eaten. He becomes bread and wine that could be even 
thrown out and, and stomped on by human beings. Right? He allows himself you know, to be in that vulnerable position in order to draw us to him with, with ease and with comfort. Right? One of the saints would say, um, what's more um, inviting than a, than a child? Right? Don't we all, you know, when we see a cute child, we want to embrace the child and hug and kiss the child, especially if he has chubby cheeks, right? You know, and, and Jesus became, God became a child in order to in invite us to intimacy, to friendship. So he doesn't come with lightning bolts. He doesn't come with the power of the, the legion of angels, but he comes in order to make himself very approachable. He approaches us and he makes himself approachable um, and the other direction as well. So to love then, he shows us, is to suffer, right? A, wound, a, a vulnerable person is somebody who is willing to suffer out of love. And this is what he shows us in the incarnation, right? His humanity is not just an identity with us, but specifically he chooses the path of suffering and pain in order to show us his love. And so there are two um, there are two signs of, of, of how we show our love, right? We show our love, number one, by doing the good of the other, by willing the good of the other. But even more um, glorious than that is that we show our love by willing to suffer for the other, right? So God, in, before the incarnation, he showed his goodness towards us and that he did, through his creative act, he did good towards us, right? He lived, he, he offered goodness towards us through his providence and his creative, his creative act. But he didn't suffer for us. But in order to show us the, the fullness of his love, he then takes on our humanity in order to be able to even suffer for us. So it means that the human person also, in their relationship with God and in the relationship with one another, must be vulnerable. We have to be willing to have that um, ability and willingness to suffer out of love for another. So in a sense, we can see that the journey of the spiritual life is this journey of vulnerability, right? How do we become more open to God? How do we become more childlike as He became a child to us? How do we become... Um, open in, in, in our ability to expose ourselves to him for his healing? How do we approach him with that familiarity? Right. So this is the, the model of the incarnation, the, the, the God of the, the hosts, of the powers, right? Who is surrounded by the cherubim and the seraphim. He becomes a vulnerable child. He becomes a vulnerable man, a crucified criminal. He becomes a vulnerable species of bread and wine. Right? in order for us to consume him. And in, in inviting us through his vulnerability, he asks us to be more vulnerable with him and with one another. Right? So that vulnerability is going to come again. We talked yesterday about like self-knowledge, being willing to go into the depths and to expose what's within ourselves and, and to bring it to Christ, to bring it to him for his healing. We see even in the Gospels, for example, there's that beautiful... Um, story where the Lord is in the synagogue and um, the, some of the scribes are waiting to see if they'll catch him doing something on the Sabbath. And there's a man in the, in the synagogue with a withered hand. So he calls the man with the withered hand 
and he says, pull out your hand, pull out your arm. Right? Now, if we think about in those days, anybody who had some sort of deformity or, or paralysis or something was a stigma. Like it was considered somebody was, was a sinner, was, was the, it was the fault of their, their family, their parents. They were sort of seen as, as being guilty of, of the condition that they were in. And so for somebody to stand in, the, in front of the synagogue and expose themselves and their, um, their deformity, you know, was a very difficult thing for them to do. And yet we see that it's when the man exposes his hand that his hand is healed. Right? So there's a cer certain pattern there. Right? That, that part of that trust in God, part of that faith in God, or we can think of the woman who had the issue of blood. Right? She sort of had to make herself vulnerable by coming through the crowd, weaving through the crowd, and touching the hem of his garment. Right? And Jesus says, I perceive power go out from me. Right? Or we can think of the vulnerability of Zacchaeus, right? who knew he would probably be mocked and laughed at for you know, climbing up a sycamore tree in order to get a glimpse of, of the, this prophet who was passing by his town. And yet he's willing to be mocked. He's willing to be laughed at. He's willing to, to be vulnerable because of his desire to see Christ. Right? So all of the examples, are, think about the, the woman who enters into Simon the Pharisee's house. Is there any more vulnerable image than this? She barges into a private event. She has a terrible reputation. She falls behind the Lord at his feet and begins to weep. Is there anything more vulnerable, embarrassing than this? in front of a group of people who are probably laughing at her and gasping. Right? And it, what we see in the Gospels is that every time there is this vulnerability, Christ responds. He, he responds, he's, he's, he's almost provoked to respond. Like, like in the issue of the woman with the issue of blood, you know, he's, like, he's like almost surprised. Power went out from me. Who touched me? Who, who, who took this power from me? Without even mean, you know, knowing in advance, as if to say... You know, of course, he knows all things, but, but he, he does this to show how much vulnerability um, has power with him, right? And so there's this sort of affinity that we have with, with the Lord Jesus Christ in that he recognizes that he bore shame for us. So when we're willing to bear shame for him, he, he honors that. He became vulnerable for us. When we're willing to be vulnerable, he honors that, right? So he sees... In a sense, when that we act in such a way, he sees himself. He sees that we are willing to do what he did for us, and this attracts him to us. This attracts his grace. So, I mean, when you read the Gospels in this way, you see just how beautiful the Lord responds to those who make themselves vulnerable. And so we need, we need to be... You know, I talked a little bit about this um, yesterday. I forget if it was in one of the informal chats or uh, during the talk where we were saying, like, even in our prayer, right, we have, to, we have to say the prayers of the church. We have to learn the Psalms. We have to say the prayers from the Igbeya. But we also have to learn how to pray with that sense of vulnerability, to speak to the Lord. You know, I, I gave the example of St. Therese. She appeared to um, the Vietnamese St. Marcel Vaughn. And, uh, and she was telling him, you know, when, when you pray, tell the, tell the Lord, you know, everything that happened in your day. You know, the games that you played and the people that you met. And, and he says, but why would, I, why would I say that? He knows all of these things. 
And she said something like, yes, of course he knows all of these things, but he pretends like he doesn't so that he hears it from you. Like, like there's this charm in God, you know, where he wants us to be like children with him. He wants us to speak to him honestly. What's bothering me? What's paining me? You know, what's, what's painful in my life? What are my joys? You know, you see, you see even the disciples, they, they're sent out, you know, in the mission field, right? And, and they come back excited. They're like children who just came back from a candy store. They're like, Lord, Lord, you won't believe it. Even the demons were subject to us in your name. And they're like, probably the whole way back, they're probably talking about, do you remember that one story where you, you, in the name of Jesus, this happened? And they were like kids, just excited. And, and, and the gospel says that Jesus rejoiced in the spirit. He was so happy with them. And he, he, he busted out into a beautiful praise to his father. I thank you, father, that you have revealed these things to babes and children and have hidden them from the wise and the prudent. Right? And then he corrects them a little bit. He's like, don't get too excited about this. You know? Don't be too excited that the demons are subject to you in my name, but be more excited that your, your names are written in heaven, you know, that you are children of God. This is more important. Right? But he rejoices with them. He wants to hear. He, he, he takes them aside to a private place in order for them to rest. And I'm sure during that time, they're probably complaining. They're telling him about the things that are, they're frustrated about. They're telling him about their joys. And he's listening to them. And he's interacting with them. Right? So we need to learn how to have that vulnerability in our worship, in our prayer. We can't, you know, sometimes the guards that we put up with other people, we do the same thing even in our relationship with God. So our weaknesses, our sins, our failures, all of these become intimate places for us to speak to God with. They can become the very means by which we have profound um, a, a profound prayer life. But we need to have the courage to uncover them and to be able to speak about them honestly in our prayer life. And if we can bring that vulnerability in our confessions, how much more powerful would our confessions be? You know, sometimes for me as a priest, one of the most touching things I see is, you know, somebody will be, you know, waiting to confess and they'll be... Um, you know, they'll be chatting outside and laughing and having a good time and, you know, we'll be talking, whatever. And then we sit down and you say, in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, all of a sudden the tears. But what happened? We didn't even start yet. You know, we didn't even say anything. Right. Just that sense of openness. Right. That sense of like, I'm going to bring I'm going to bring my wounds. I'm going to bring all that's hurting me, you know, and it's very healing. Like as a priest, I'm always like very um, uh, inspired, very moved, you know, for myself to repent when I see that kind of vulnerability in repentance. People think, oh, Abuna's going to think it's never the case. I've never met a priest who, who has that experience of being like, oh, you know. <laughs> On the contrary, every priest I, I, I've, we've spoken together about, when, when there's a genuine repentance, no matter how much is exposed, the priest is thinking of himself. He's saying, Lord, grant me such repentance. Let me to repent like this person. Let me to be honest about what's going on inside of me as this person is honest in front of you right now. You know, probably more tempting to, to you know, question somebody is the person who comes in and you know, has this huge sort of guard up and you know, says, oh, you know, nothing, nothing really usual like everybody else I don't do anything like you know maybe I said a wrong word or looked at something and yeah 
you know, and you feel like this person is not willing to open before the Lord. They're not willing to be honest. They're not willing to expose. And therefore, they're not going to receive the healing that they're looking for. You know? So that vulnerability, you know, um, Father Zacharias that I've quoted to and um, I know, um, uh, in some of his books, he talks about this exchange of, of like the shame that we carry in confession becomes very, a very healing um, experience because God honors the shame that we bear for him in confession because he sees his own shame, the shame of the cross. He sees a sort of affinity with that shame. He sees that the shame that he bore on the cross is the same shame that this person is sort of carrying um, in their confession. And he honors that. He honors that ability or that w willingness to, to bear the shame of our sins. And, and maybe, maybe there's a sense in which God is grateful, you know? There's a sense that God is grateful in that the bearing of our, the shame of our sins, you know, I mean, I'm just... This is sort of my meditation, right? That God sort of is grateful in saying, this is why I bore the shame of the cross. You know, I bore the shame of the cross because of the shame of all of the sins of humanity. And the fact that you recognize that and are willing to expose it makes, makes the cross all worth it. You know, it's, it's a sort of gratitude for the cross when we bear shame in our confession. We shouldn't be afraid of bearing, especially in, in confession. It's the most beautiful place to bear, to bear the shame of our, of our sins. And when we do that, we experience the great mercy of God, right? We think of that the shame of the prodigal son, the shame that he, you know, sort of is carrying that weight of that, that guilt and that shame and thinking about how am I going to confront my father? What am I going to say to him? How can I convince him to just let me be a worker in his household, right? And that shame is immediately converted by mercy, that shame is immediately met with mercy, and it's, it's broken by, by the mercy of God, right? And, and, and not only is sort of God, ex the Lord accept him, right, or the Father accept him, but he lavishes on him the, 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 uh, the robe and the ring and the, and the sandals, and he slaughters the fatted calf, and there's a celebration and music and dancing, right? There's a huge joy in heaven to reverse the shame that we bring um, in our, in our uh, repentance and confession. Okay, so that's vulnerability. The next one is learning to, um, to deal with the silence of God. So today, we, this morning, we talked about silence that we cultivate in our life, the different forms of silence. But there's also the experience of God's silence. Again, we see that um, God became man and became vulnerable, but God also in his humanity showed us that there is a certain silence that he uses to teach us about his presence. Right? And it's one of these paradoxes of the Christian life that sometimes presence is experienced through absence. Right? Just like the, the, glory of the glory and suffering, you know, death and life that the presence of God is often concealed in the absence of, of the sensible presence of God. Where do we see this? We see this in the, for, in the sleeping child in the manger of Bethlehem, right? God is somehow silent in this child. We see him asleep in the boat with the disciples. There's a storm raging 
Now, think about in that story, Jesus is asleep and there's a storm happening, right? I think any one of us who's in a boat and there's a storm and there's waves and there's wind and, and, and you can hear the people on the boat are screaming and complaining and somehow the Lord is asleep. He's totally at peace. He's totally deep and he's exhausted. He must be so tired that he's able to sleep through all of that, you know? And, but it becomes a symbol, right? The disciples are, don't you care that we're perishing? How can you sleep? How can you not show us your presence, manifest to us your presence in this time of need? And he looks at them as if to say, what does it matter to you whether I'm awake or I'm asleep? I'm still the Pantocrator. I still have command over the seas and the winds. I'm no less in charge of the universe and over your life when I'm with you or when I'm not with you, when I'm sleeping or when I'm awake. You need to learn how to accept the, my presence through my absence, my attentiveness through my sleeping. Right? And so, as one uh, of the saints said, love never sleeps. God's love never sleeps. But His love sleeps in a sense that it refines our love for Him. Right. There's a, an author that uh, has some wonderful books on the spiritual life. His name is Archbishop Luis Martinez. He was uh, Archbishop of Mexico City in the 20th century. Um, and he wrote um, the following. He said, when Jesus is awake, he gives more than he receives. When night comes, sorry, when Jesus is awake, he gives more than, than he receives. When Jesus surrenders to sleep, he moves the soul to correspond to the love it has received, to give generously, to offer its bitter tears and its secret martyrdom with heroic fortitude. Right? So in a sense, he's saying, when Jesus is awake, he gives more than he receives from us. But when he's sleeping, he asks us now to give back from what we received from him. Right? So this is the moment in which we prove our love, we prove our faith, we prove our hope in Him, is when He's asleep, when the silence of God is, is sometimes troubling us. Lord, where are you? I'm calling out to you. Where are you? I don't hear your voice. I don't feel you like I used to. Right? It's in that moment He's saying, I have given you enough to respond to me at this moment. You have it within you. You have the grace within you to love me and to believe in me, to trust in me during this time. So the, 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 the sleeping of God, the, the silence of God, is meant to purify our love, to refine it, to make it more selfless, right? When God is awake, in a sense, we say we, say we receive from Him His consolations, His, His presence. And when He's asleep, then we learn how to love Him more from ourselves without those consolations. So to grow in any virtue, we must sort of endure the temptations against that very virtue, right? So if we want to learn patience, how do we learn patience? By dealing with people that are going to test our patience, right? With dealing with very frustrating circumstances at work or at home or at church, in my service, right? How else am I going to learn patience unless I'm put in positions in which my patience is tested and stretched, right? How am I going to learn humility? I might think I'm humble until somebody criticizes me. I might think I'm humbled until, you know, 
I lose my position in some rank that I'm in. I might think I'm humble and, until I get reprimanded. Right? So the only way that I can actually learn real humidity, humility is to be put in positions that will test my humility. And the same thing happens with faith. Right? How can I grow in faith unless I'm tempted with doubts and indifference by God and the loss of sort of a sense of me being able to like turn on and off that sense of his presence in my life? Right? It's only when those experiences are there that my faith can become heroic, can become real, can become really virtuous. So think of faith as like a muscle that has to be stretched, even to the point of tearing. Right? Just like when you go to the gym, you sort of have to tear your muscle in order for it to grow stronger and bigger. So in the same way, the faith that we have has to be stretched. And it'll be stretched when we're put in those positions like the apostles. Think about every, every time the apostles were put in that position, they were growing. There was a, there was a purpose. Right? And the story of the feeding of the multitudes, again, they just finished this wonderful miracle. They fed thousands of people with the, with the loaves and the fish. And immediately they're placed in the boat and put in the storm. And they learned that their faith was not as strong as they thought it was. So every time we go through those periods of God's silence, we're invited to respond with a more generous love and a more generous faith. And this leads us then to the next one, which is this, um, this sense of being able to wait upon God. Right? Sort of related to like, this idea of patience. But, but waiting is a more you know, um, common expression that we hear like, in the Psalms especially. You know, wait upon the Lord. I will wait upon the Lord. Right? And this period that we're entering into... Uh, tomorrow, Advent, literally means something that's approaching, something that's about to arrive. The word Advent is, is something is coming, something is about to arrive, which is the birth of Christ, right? And so we're waiting. You know, humanity was waiting for the incarnation that the prophets spoke of, you know, the, the Messiah. We're still, as a church, waiting for the second coming. But at every moment in our life, we're always waiting upon the Lord for something, we're waiting for His grace. We're waiting upon Him for His mercy, for His forgiveness. We're waiting upon Him for uh, his, his, his aid, His help in our lives. So waiting is a, is a sort of permanent disposition that, that we as Christians have to live according to. We can never get tired of waiting, right? which is a very difficult thing for our, our culture, our, our generation. We're not really a people that like to wait. Right? We don't like to wait for food, so we have fast food, you know, lines. We don't like fast food lines, so we get to order in advance, you know. We don't want to order in advance, we actually have it delivered to our house, right? Uh, you know, we want to order a book on Amazon and make sure it comes the next day. Now you can even order, I didn't realize this until just a couple months ago, you can have stuff comes at like five in the morning. Like not by the middle of the day, next day, but no, they'll tell you when you wake up, you'll find it at your door. Like you can dream about it and then when you wake up, it's there, you know. <laughs> So, so our culture is moving towards removing any possibility of waiting, right? You know, even with medicine now, telemedicine stuff, it's like well, the doctor will just call you, you, you could just be wherever and they'll just call you when he's ready and then so you don't have to wait in the waiting office at the, at the doctor's office. So, I mean, we can all think of examples of how 
instant gratification and, and sort of this removal of, of the need to wait for something um, can hurt our spiritual lives. Because, again, we, we, we can't really be in a relationship with God in which we demand instant sort of response from Him and gratification from Him. Um, we see, um, actually very beautifully, in the life of St. Mary and St. Joseph, right, that so much of what happened in her life wasn't like given to her in a blueprint, right? It's not like the Archangel Gabriel appeared to her and she said yes, and he said, okay, here's the plan. And he rolled out a scroll and said, okay, on this day, this is going to happen, and on this day, you know, you're going to have to go to Egypt, and, but don't worry, after this amount of time, you're going to come back, and you're going to be living here. And he didn't, the, you know, the mother of God, the one who, who, who said yes to give birth to God in, in the flesh. She had to learn how to wait. You know? And so her and Joseph, they lived this life of abandonment and surrender, waiting. Even, you know, they go to Egypt and they're still waiting. Okay, then what? And they're waiting for an angel appears and says, okay, go back to, to, to your hometown. Okay, they start going back and he said, no, no, don't go this way because Herod is seeking, go this way. Okay, so moment by moment, they're sort of at the disposal of waiting upon God to give them direction. Even St. Mary and St. Joseph. Right? None of them had sort of this, <coughs> this right to say, no, no, I don't want to wait. Tell me exactly how it's going to all unfold. You know, I have a right. I, I, you know, I'm, I'm the mother of God. You know, Jesus, you're my son, obey me. You know, <laughs> she didn't, she didn't um, claim for herself any sort of privilege. You know, any shortcut with God. We can think about even St. Mary after the, the, the resurrection. You know, she's living a very, again, simple, humble life. We know that St. John the Evangelist is caring for her. And, you know, she's living in this sort of state of, of you know, waiting to see what's going to happen. It's going to happen with the apostles. It's going to happen with their mission. What's her role going to be? Everything is unfolding, you know, in a, in a very humble way. You know, there's no, there's, there, there's no privilege that's even given to the greatest of saints. They, we all have to learn how to wait. We all have to learn how to have that sort of constant disposition of saying, I, I will never tire of waiting, Lord. I will wait as long as it takes. That's a permanent sort of stance, disposition that I take is that of waiting. And the next one then is related, which is seeking answers versus living life. Right? Again, sometimes we want, you know, we want answers to our questions. Okay, Lord, what the, okay, I'm willing to do this, but just tell me why. Or, okay, so give me the reason why, you know, what's the, what's the wisdom in this? You know, or whatever it is that we're struggling with, we're constantly, you know, seeking answers to our questions. And sometimes the, 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 the response is, there's, there is no response, right? Even we go to our priests and we say, well, what's, what's God's wisdom? I'm not sure. We have to wait and see. Okay. Um, there's, um, oh, thank you. There's that moment in the Gospels where they ask the Lord, and this is in Luke 13, 23. They said, Lord, will only a few be saved? So they're asking him a question. He knows the answer. He could give them a very specific answer. I can tell you exactly how many souls will be saved. 
right? But what is his response to them? He says, strive to enter through the narrow door. So they ask a question seeking an answer, and he says to them, live your life. Live this life. As if to say that the answers that you are seeking are not to be given to you like this. The answers that you're seeking are to be unfolded little by little as you live the Christian life. As you enter deeper and deeper into your relationship with God, as you struggle and as you go, you know, forwards two steps and backwards one step and forwards three steps and backwards one step. And in that experience of living your life with God, the answers will begin to unfold. The meaning begins to unfold. The purpose begins to unfold. And so the most important thing, you know, to, to, to comfort yourself when you're in a time of, of, of confusion is say, just keep going. The answer is, is going to be found in my, in my struggle. Um, Father Wilfred Stinnison, uh, another very good author, he has a book called uh, Into Your Hands, Abandoning Ourselves to the, God who loves, to the Father Who Loves Us. He writes, life is too short to give answers to all of our questions. You have been given your time to live life. In Christianity, life comes before any speculation about it. And this life is extremely simple. Love God and your neighbor. That is what all, it all comes down to. Experience shows us that the one who lives this way in love will eventually receive answers to his or her questions. The answers grow out of life itself. Right. Okay, the next one, I think the last one, is childlike simplicity. Again, we were talking about that um, incident where the, the disciples came back and they were you know, very excited that you know, they were in the mission field and in, in the name of Jesus, they were casting out demons and they had all these successes. And they were very excited. And Jesus praises the Father and says, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and prudent and have revealed them to babes. Right. So this idea of simplicity, to be a child, to be a babe, is not to be understood as a naive person, right? an uneducated person. Right? It's something that talks about, again, this idea of receptivity. Why are the disciples called babes? Why are those who follow the Lord called children? Because they're open. Their hearts are open. Their hearts aren't hardened and closed. Right? And like a child who's, 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 who's always open to life, open to receive a word, Right? The disciples and, and, and each of us are called to this sort of receptivity of a child. And what is it that, you know, he's not, he's not criticizing wisdom. Of course, God is wisdom, right? So when he says, you have hidden these things from the wise and prudent, what, what is he talking about? Who are, who are the wise and the prudent that he's criticizing, right? So, of course, he's re referring very specifically to the scribes and the Pharisees, those who have nothing but reproach, those who have nothing but uh, accusations against him, those who are unwilling to listen and be changed and converted because all they're all constantly on the attack, right? But, but why are they wise and prudent? Why does he call them that? If we think about um, the context here and the word that's being used, what he's calling wise is not the godly wisdom that we're all called to uh, achieve, but it's, it's those who have a certain skill set, right? Those who are skilled, right? And who, those, are, those who are skilled are those who are like, in any trade, they develop a skill over time. Like a carpenter, like a fisherman, like, you know, a goldsmith, 
right? They, they are skilled workers, right? They, they, they do the same thing over and over and over again. They become experts in it. And because they become experts in it, they despise those who don't have the knowledge that they have, right? And so the, the skilled person becomes a crafty person. And, and, and craftiness is sort of the extreme of that negative side of a skilled, per, of a skilled person in that, we, you know, in the, like the prayer of the reconciliation, we say, you know, all um, craftiness and the remembrance of vice bearing death. What is craftiness? So a craft is good, right? To have, to have a craft, to have a skill set, to have a trade is good. But craftiness is sort of that extreme of, of, uh, of a talent that is built on arrogance exploits other people and has this, um, this, this pride and this self-assurance and begins to look down upon those who don't have it, right? And that was the problem of the scribes and the Pharisees, is that they made theology, they made God a skill. We have this skill, this is ours. We're, the, we're like the, 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 the goldsmith, that we have the, we have the talent and we have the knowledge, and we look down upon those who don't have our knowledge. So the scribes and the Pharisees, they looked down on the people because they were crafty. And so St. Paul in Corinthians will say, Let no one deceive himself. If anyone among you seems to be wise in this age, let him become a fool that he may become wise. For the wisdom of this world is foolishness with God. For it is written, he catches the wise in their own craftiness. 1 Corinthians 3, 18 and 19. He catches the wise in their own craftiness. So the worst kind of craftiness is when, it, when, it's, when it's in the area of theology, you know, the things of God. When somebody claims to have like this perfect, you know, like speaks on God's behalf and looks down upon other people. So the babes then are those who are not, again, naive or, or infantile, um, but they are the ones who are willing to be taught, willing to learn. They're not like the crafty, who are certain of their, of their skill. So there's a certain, what we might call in the spiritual life, docility. You know, to be docile is somebody who's always teachable, who is always willing to, 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 be, to be open to receive something. So I'll end with this uh, quote from Sister Ruth Burroughs. Um, the nun that I mentioned that um, passed away last week, she was uh, 100 years old when she died. She wrote the following. She said, I wonder whether we take seriously enough, we grown men and women, the stress that Jesus puts on being a child in order to receive what God has to give. It means God can come fully only to the little one. It means renouncing all ideas of our own spiritual importance, of what we do for God, what we give to God, our own supposed goodness and virtue. It means casting aside any concern for the image of ourselves, so precious to ourselves, that we are indeed truly spiritual men and women. Julian of Norwich maintains that in this life we can have no other stature than that of childhood. I think that when Jesus takes the child in his arms, sets him in front of himself, pointing to him as a model, it is to himself he is pointing. His inmost heart was always that of a child, and that is why he could live with such freedom, courage, and self-squandering. To my mind, this is, the nub, this is the nub of the truly Christian faith. This grasp that all is gift and our work is simply to receive, to learn how to receive. Certainly when I myself get the spiritual fidgets and become anxious about myself and my life, I find my answer in simply saying to myself, 
you are only a child. And glory be to God forever. Amen. Just tell me when it, when we're like okay. Thank you so much, Amanda, for uh, the talk. Sorry, give me a second to look at these questions. Say the first part of the question. Uh, can you elaborate on meditative prayer? Oh. Yeah. So the idea of, of meditation or meditative prayer is simply that we're engaging in a text, a spiritual text, whether it's the scriptures. Usually we, we, we primarily re refer to the scriptures, especially the gospels. And um, we read them in a way that's not simply like I'm preparing a lesson or I'm trying to understand literally what's happened, but I'm, I'm engaged in a sort of um, process of, of reading, reflecting, and then praying. Right? So I read something, I reflect on what it means to me, how it applies to me, wh where I am in the story, what's, you know, what touches me about what I'm reading, and then I begin to pray with that, right? That this, in the very simple way, that's all it is, right? And there's no, like, there's no perfect formula. There's no like right or wrong way of doing it. We just begin with the text. Like I said, we begin with, let's say, you know, the story of Zacchaeus, right? And we, we try to reflect on what is this text saying to me? What does God want to give me in this text? What is, what is it that I today find myself sort of uh, needing from this text? You know, and it could be that I said, like I said yesterday, that I see myself as Zacchaeus himself, in which I need to implore the Lord to come into my house. It could be that I see myself as, you know, somebody who is among the crowds, who is sort of curious, but not yet committed in my life. You know, so, and then I can begin to pray with it, right? And it could be just a prayer that's a few seconds, or it could be a prayer that goes for on for minutes. And then I continue reading, right? until I finish the passage. So it could be from the Gospels, it could be from a spiritual book that you're reading about, let's say, a virtue. And you read a little bit and then you ponder, and then you pray a little bit and then you go back to reading. And then you ponder, and then you, you know, it's sort of like when the Lord said, um, use the expression, counting the cost of discipleship, right? That means we reflect, we have to evaluate, we have to ponder, um, ruminate, chew, you know, chew on the Word of God, right? So it's a different way of reading the Bible that's not just, let's say, if, you know, I'm reading it just to, you know, do a Bible study or to, you know, understand the literal meaning of the text, but I'm, I'm using it as a springboard for prayer, right? And so again, I think the best thing is just, you know, to begin in a very simple way with the Gospels. You, know, you take a passage or a chapter from the Gospels and just begin to enjoy you know, like, you're not in any rush, you're not trying to get through uh, a certain, you know, uh, number of verses. You're just reading something in order to begin to pray with it. Um, any spiritual book can also be used, as long as it's, obviously, it's not something like, 
you know, church history or something is probably not going to be the easiest to, to do. But, but something that's speaking about the life of faith, about the virtues, the life of a saint, all of that can be very useful for learning how to, uh, to, to meditate on a spiritual text. Now, I don't understand the second part of the question. Um, the second question, I think it was, do you recommend meditative prayers while pregnant? Oh. Yeah. Um, I think they're different. Like, I think when we're, so usually when we're praying the Egbeya, we're in a more formal um, position of, we don't always have to be, but usually we're standing, you know, or we're in a more formal position of prayer. You know, we're crossing ourselves, we're maybe bowing our head, we're kneeling, we're um, making prostrations. So the Igbeya tends to be uh, in the realm of recitative prayer where we're either saying it out loud or we're saying it silently, but we're reciting word by word what the prayers are saying. We can, of course, stop and meditate on the Psalms and on the prayers, but meditative prayer is much more informal. Right? We can be sitting on a couch in a chair with a cup of coffee next to us and, and just enjoying time with the Lord through the text. It doesn't have to be a formal, you know. So I would say that, you know, we, we sort of move in, the, in, the, in, a, in a progression of from formal to less formal as we move from recitative prayer to contemplative prayer. So in recitative prayer, again, there's more ritual associated with it. Meditative prayer, less so. And, and with silence, um, even less because we can practice silence anywhere when we're driving, when we're sitting in our backyard, when we're at the ocean, when we're just sitting in our room. We could be, you know, and, and, and but so I think that the important thing is to try to incorporate a little bit of all of them, you know. And if you feel drawn towards praying in a certain way, then it's something good to discuss with your spiritual father. I really feel like the Lord is sort of like drawing me more into meditative prayer. So say, okay, so, you know, spend a little bit less time, let's say, with the Egbeya and more time in reading, you know, or it could be the opposite, you know, and, and this actually is, um, uh, if you've read the Silent Patriarch, there's a, there's a section in there that talks about Pope uh, Krulus when he was in Old Cairo, just the years before he was ordained Patriarch. And during that time is when he had a lot of spiritual children that later became some of the real significant figures in the church, like Pope Shenouda and Abu Nemetta and, you know, Amba Gregorius and Amba Samuel and all of these people um, were, were sort of discipled by him during this time. So it's really the only time that we have in his life where he was a spiritual father, like taking confessions, and we have a little bit of a glimpse of what he was like. So Amba Athanasius, at that time, the, uh, the, the bishop of Beni Swift, he said in one of his talks, um, it's an audio recording, and he said in one of his talks, he said, you know, they asked him what was he like, was, what was Pope Krulus like as a spiritual father? How did he guide people in their spiritual life? You know, because as, as patriarch, we don't really have uh, any insight into that. And he said he didn't stress a certain canon you know, a certain like rule for each person. But he sort of discovered how God was leading the person and encouraged them to continue. So he said, if he found that somebody came and said, you know, I really love praying the Psalms. He would say, okay, spend more time praying the Psalms. If somebody came and said, I really love spending time reading the scriptures, he would say, okay, spend more time reading the scriptures. If somebody came and said, I really love to say the Jesus prayer, he would encourage say, spend more time saying the Jesus prayer. So he felt like his role as a spiritual father was not to say, no, this is, you, you, this is what I do, you should do the same. You know, this is exactly how I pray, this is how you should pray. But he knew that the Holy Spirit 
is sort of leading each of us to discover how, how each of us is meant to pray. Because each of us prays uniquely. I mean, the church gives us the tools that are acceptable and protects us from you know, going outside of, sort of a certain boundary. But, but prayer in and of itself is unique to each of us. Each, no one, not one person prays like another person because every soul is unique and therefore every soul is in prayer is expressing itself in a very unique way. So I think the important thing is to practice all three and see with time where you feel sort of like inspired and where you enjoy spending more time with God. Because all of these are just tools. Right? They're, they're tools to get us to the same, to the same goal. The next question is, how can we express our emotions in a healthy Christian way without suppressing our emotions and later expressing too much in a negative way? Mm -hmm. Well, I mean, I think even in the life of the Lord, we see that like in Gethsemane, he's sort of um, complaining to his friends, right? He's like, hey, I'm in anguish here. Could you not stay awake with me for one hour? You know, um, and so there are times where, where the Lord himself is, is sort of saying, you know, that he needs companionship. He needs, he needs to, to be comforted. So we all, we all need to have that ability to be able to find comfort in, in, in um, relationships, whether it's a spousal relationship, friendship, uh, our spiritual father, you know, co-workers. I think we just need the wisdom to know, you know, again, sort of what is that balance between, you know, exposing ourselves too much to somebody that might hurt us or, or that might, um, you know, use that opening that we give, you know, to abuse us. We don't want to, you know, obviously open ourselves to that kind of um, relationship. But I think that's what friendships are, are for. That's what, you know, husbands and wives are there for each other. That's what our relationship with our spiritual father is. Sometimes people come in confession and, you know, they spend an hour and maybe 10 minutes of it could have been an actual confession. The rest of it is sort of like, hey, I just need to open up. I just need to talk. You know, I'm going through some tough things right now, and, and it's, a, it's really just an opportunity for, for them to sort of express their emotions and their feelings. So I think, you know, I, I don't know if I can say much more. I mean, I think, I think you know, we, we all have that. You know, we all need to be able to, uh, you know, sort of have those relationships and we can, where we can feel safe to express our emotions. Um, but I think what governs us is, of course, is the, is the scriptures and the word of God. You know, we, we shouldn't use our emotions in a way that will hurt somebody, that will offend somebody, that will sort of usurp their freedom or their space or to control them or to manipulate. Right? So I think as long as we're living according to the gospel, we'll, we'll be able to manage our emotional life in a way that doesn't infringe on somebody else and hurt them, um, but finds that proper balance of how you know, we, we utilize friendships and relationships in a way that's mutually for our, uh, the edification and upbuilding of each of us individually. This is the last question. Okay. Um, about accepting Christ like a child, I don't have simple faith and like to be intellectual about the faith. How can I find that balance? Mm -hmm. It's... it's um, if any of you have heard of uh, an American monk, his name was Father Seraphim Rose. Um, Father Seraphim Rose was uh, a very interesting person. Uh, he died in the 1980s, I think. He was, um, he was a brilliant intellectual person. 
You know, he knew like seven languages. He knew like Chinese, like fluently. He could teach it. He knew philosophy. He knew music. Like he was, he was just one of these people that just was an intellectual giant. And he was raised in, a, in a, an American Protestant family, abandoned his Christian faith at a young age, you know, sort of dabbled in some Eastern religions, I think eventually was an atheist. And he came into contact with, um, with Orthodoxy through a, a, a Russian saint who's now buried in San Francisco. His name is St. John Maximovich. And St. John was sort of like, you know, the Pope Carlos of the Russian church, you know. Um, and so Father Seraphim became a very devout, very ascetical monk in a monastery in Northern California in a town called Platina. And he has a number of, of books that are under his, uh, under his name. Uh, God's Revelation to the Human Heart is a very good one to start with. That's a small one, but very powerful book. Um, and he, because he was so um, brilliant, he struggled. He struggled with sort of reconciling his intellect with that simple faith. And so he would talk about things like he had to learn how to crucify his mind. Right? In other words, he would say to somebody who came to him and to himself, he'd say, you know, sometimes he would read, let's say, something from the Synexarium. And he'd say, did this really happen? You know, like, come on, is this just some legend or something? You know, and he would say, you know what, I, all I would do is I would take that thought that was troubling me, and I would like put it in like a closet, like a mental closet. I'll just say, you know what, I'm, not gonna, I'm, not, I'm just going to put it over here for now. And then continue going on, right? And it's sort of like the, you know, what we said in the, in the talk about like, you know, trying to resolve all of our questions, try, trying to find solutions to all of what are, you know, one way that we crucify the mind is just simply saying, you know what, I'm, I'm going to put it aside for now. I'm going to look at it later, you know, and to kind of continue with the things that I need to do in order to live according to the gospel. Right, to try to put into practice the commandments and to have a life of worship and prayer and reading and so on. Um, and, and little by little, we, we sort of gain simplicity as a gift from God. You know, we sort of lose, all of us lose simplicity when we go from being ch children to being adults. You know, the world sort of corrupts us and, and we lose that. But, you know, one of the saints said, he says, we lose um, simplicity when we mature and we regain it in holiness. We regain it in, in, in a life of holiness. So as we grow in the spiritual life, we regain that sense of simplicity. You know, it doesn't mean that we become stupid. It doesn't mean that we sort of turn off our intellect. It just means that we're able to, to reconcile them in a way that doesn't cause us such frustration and, and division within ourselves. When you look at, I don't know, how, did any of you get to meet Pope Shenouda? Yeah. I mean, Pope Shenouda was a genius, right? He was, I mean, brilliant person, not just in theology, and, but poetry, and he was, a, he was a man of very high intellect. And, and, but one of the things that you find with Pope Shenouda, he, was a very, he could be very simple in how he would laugh and tell stories and how he would play with the children. Right? And this is a sign of, of real holiness, that, that it's not that he turns off his intellect, but that he gains simplicity alongside his intellect and is able, they're so, sort of able to co coexist together. So I would say, you know, this idea of what Father Seraphim is saying is like, don't feel like you have to address everything. When your intellect is, is troubling you about something in the faith, just say, you know, okay, I'm going to just take this and put it over here for now. I'm going to keep going. You know, don't feel like, oh, I can't go on until I resolve this. That could be a trick from the devil to just sort of like, again, discourage you and, 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 and get you to sort of walk away from the journey. That would be my advice.
Thank you. Thank you.